This is Greg Kutsona talking about science and religion, particularly for the open-minded. Today, in this podcast episode, I'd like to look at atheism, particularly in its ancient variations, in its ancient roots. But I am going to start with a contemporary quote from the comedian and entertainer Ricky Gervais. A Christian telling an atheist he's going to hell is about as scary as a small child telling an adult they won't get any presents from Santa. Or again, science is constantly being proved over time. You see, if we take something like any fiction, in any holy book, and any other fiction, and destroyed it, okay, in a thousand years' time, that wouldn't come back just as it was. Whereas if we took every science book and every fact and destroyed them all in a thousand years, they'd all come back because they all have the same tests which would have the same results. There are ancient roots to atheism often summarized with these three statements. God is omnipotent. God is omniscient. God is omnibenevolent. That's the first statement. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. God is all-good. The second is the world contains evil and suffering. And the third is therefore God does not exist. Either God doesn't want to remove suffering or God cannot remove suffering. Later on, we'll look at whether these definitions of all-good and all powerful actually work together? Is there a way that a good being would limit power for the sake of goodness? But uh, still, this is one of the most difficult problems presented uh, and a key argument for atheism. One other is uh, formulated by the contemporary thinker Jerry Coyne, who says, I consider, quote, all religious belief is unfounded and irrational. I consider religion to be superstition. What I want to do again in this episode is look at some of the roots of these uh, convictions and conclusions. As we do that, it's important to look at perhaps one important uh, distinction between atheism and anti-theism. So one you might uh, that's been made one would be atheism is no belief in God or gods that would be atheism. Let me just mention that God with a capital has traditionally been used for a being that is outside of the material world and is responsible for creating uh, the material world, sometimes for sustaining and sometimes for involving that God with this world. The lowercase god uh, would be the plurality of gods often within this system we think of as the world. God with a capital is distinguished from the world. God with a lowercase or gods would be within a system uh, of the world. Just as an example, God with a capital would be within Islam where this transcendent being creates the world, but is not in any way uh, defined by the same system as the world. Gods would be within, say, the Hindu structure, uh, which the gods and human beings and other creatures are within the system of karma. Okay, so that's all a way of describing atheism. There's no belief in God or gods. Uh, 
The second would be anti-theism, which is an active denial that there is no God or God. So when we look at Ricky Gervais, that would be more anti-theism. Within the conversation about science and religion, I like to use the word materialism or naturalism, which I would define this way. They hold both or either, let's say either is probably clearer, either materialism or naturalism holds that matter constitutes the fundamental substance in all things, and thus that mental aspects and consciousness are purely results of material interactions. So our thinking, the fact that you and I think that we're thinking right now, is actually really just a material interaction within our brains. Now, atheists is important are not the same as the religious nuns. So religious nuns are those, as I've mentioned previously, who check the box when asked, what religion are you? Muslim, Hindu, neo-pagan, or none of the above, they'll check none. And a court, so that's you know a growing percentage of American populace, um, significantly for 18 to 30 year olds, somewhere around let's say 35 percent, maybe even 40 percent of that demographic. But according to even a report, uh, let's just say a report in 2015 by the Pew Research Center, at that time, just over three percent of the U.S. adult population identifies as atheist, up from about 1.5 percent in 2007, which of course is significant. That's a doubling, but is not the same as at that time those with no religion for across all age demographics, which or the nuns, which was 13.6 percent. So um, somewhere around one third or a little bit less, maybe a quarter of religiously unaffiliating or nuns are atheists. All right, back to the ancient world. As I said, this is uh, receiving a lot of this, meaning atheism, is receiving a lot of attention today, but it goes back to some of the earliest philosophical texts we know in the 5th century before the Common Era, the Greek philosopher Diagoras is the first known atheist. Um, I mentioned Epicurus previously, one of his uh, followers centuries later, Titus Lu Lucretius Carus, who was in the first century before the Common Era, also held to a philosophy of strict materialism, which denies, again, the existence of anything magical, mysterious, or transcendent. Um, as I mentioned, Epicurus seemed to have believed in gods, but they were, if they existed, they were not interested in human beings. And therefore, in some ways, why call them gods? Uh, a key idea for Epicurus is ataraxia, that is, if they were gods, they wouldn't want to be disturbed with um, the world. So there you go. Lucretius is anti-religious. So Lucretius, this uh, first century before the Common Era speaker, was anti-religious. So potent was religion in persuading us to do wrong. Death should not uh, should not be feared. It's a matter of pure indifference. So uh, why? Because life is made up of the material. So do we have any concept before we are born? No. Do should we have any concept after we die? No. Therefore, why fear it? And it is actually the religious people, Lucretius said that. Uh, stoke fear within us. Life is made of something uh, indivisible. In Greek, that's atomos, 
that which is indivisible, um, and therefore he is an atomist. Uh, Lucretius, however, does not use this word. He was uh, he wrote in Latin, um, but later on and earlier than him, people who use this word were called the atomists. Lucretius used instead a circumlocution, the first beginnings of thing, primor, uh, primordia rerum, seeds or matters or materies, deriving from mater, meaning mother. So Lucretius believed that at the core of life was this idea of um, the, the, the material world. Um, and this, by the way, I'm just actually writing down a note to myself um, how important this is that was re uh, brought to us brought to us again um, in the book the swerve by Stephen Greenblatt for how important this is for today so Lucretius is by no means uh, gone so um, Lucretius believed that the world is deeply flawed and this is his idea of the problem of evil um, the Epicureans and Lucretius sought to build their philosophy on the natural world, what many of us would today call science. They found a world that was purely material. Um, but they had a problem with determinism. All people who believe, uh, hold to strict materialism, have an, uh, an issue of, is there any way to have free will, any way for human beings to decide about uh, and have agency? Um, and so they came up with this idea of the swerve. This is the book I was mentioning, the title of the book I was mentioning by Stephen Greenblatt, that new patterns of atomic motion allow for an indeterminism, which is something like free will. Like how do we have a new thought that isn't just the interactions of our brains? So fast forward. Again, I want to underline the differences from um, contemporary uh, atheism. There were the late 1700s, uh, or late 18th century, i.e. in the 1700s, the philosophes who exalted reason through science, and they wanted to undo the power of the Roman Catholic Church of the time. Um, later, uh, sorry, later you're going to come to Pierre-Simon Laplace, um, who was, dates are 1749 to 1827, when asked by Napoleon, that is the great emperor, about the absence of God in his scientific theories, Laplace is said to reply, Sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. This will be replicated in uh, several of the contemporary materialists or atheists of our time. Sir, I have no need of that hypothesis. When I do my mathematics, I don't need to add God to make uh, you know, the universe uh, work scientifically. Um, this is uh, brought forward also in his famous deterministic and materialistic um, description of reality, sometimes known as the demon. He said this, quote, We may regard the present state of the universe as the effect of its past and the cause of its future. An intellect, this is uh, renamed the demon by later writers, an intellect which at a certain moment would know all forces that set nature in motion and all positions of all items of which nature is composed. If this intellect were also vast enough to submit these data to analysis, it would embrace in a single formula the movements of the greatest bodies of the universe and those of the tiniest atoms. For such an intellect, nothing would be uncertain 
and the future, just like the past, would be present before its eyes. End of quote. In other words, if you know enough about the past and the effects, the causes of the past, you could determine exactly what would happen today. Let me just put a, f- a historical footnote in that with complexity and chaos theory, this idea is significantly questioned within uh, physics itself. Let me go then to uh, three key atheists, um, often called 19th century atheists. They do their lives go into the 20th century, but these were three that were significant when I was studying in the uh, in my undergraduate in the 1980s. Um, these were still huge: Nietzsche, Marx, and Freud. So Nietzsche is famous for saying that God is dead. His dates are 1844 to 1900. In other words, in the idea of his philosophy, in the idea of the intellectuals that he knew, God was not a factor that was important for him. Karl Marx, whose dates are 1818 to 1883, said that religion is the opiate of the masses. And though I've read some who want to make that a positive statement, my reading of it is in, this is an economic, social, social economic statement that religion holds down the proletariat from uprising and gives them hope in something that's to come, a heaven, uh, which mitigates against their uprising for their terrible material state today. And then probably most importantly for this class, uh, and if you're in the class, science and religion at Chico State, or for many people in um, evolutionary science and uh, psychology um, who borrow from Freud, Sigmund Freud, in terms of his uh, his convictions. Uh, Freud, whose dates are 1856 to 1939, said that religion is an illusion. And here I want to quote from Alice McGrath in his book, Science and Religion, A New Introduction. It is widely agreed that Freud's discussion of religion is one of his most significant contributions to the debate on science and religion. Freud declared that we were wounded as human beings in demonstrating that human beings are not the masters of their own destiny. To quote McGrath, they were imprisoned and molded by hidden psychological forces located in the human unconscious. Freud developed the idea of humanity being the prisoner of its own inner demons by arguing that religion can be accounted for psychoanalytically. Religion is a human creation, the result of an obsession with ritual and veneration of a father figure. Freud's account of the, quote, psychogenesis of religion, end of quote, is totally unsympathetic in tone, lacking rigorous empirical evidential foundations and strongly reductionist in approach. This is uh, McGrath's idea. Continuing from McGrath, Totem and Taboo from 1913 considers how religion has its origins in society in general. The Future of Religion, 1927, deals with the psychological or uh, with the psychological origins of religion for the individual. Uh, and there, Freud uses the term psychogenesis. For Freud, still reading from McGrath, religious ideas are, quote, illusions, fulfillments of the oldest, strongest, and most urgent wishes of mankind, end of quote. McGrath continues, similar ideas were developed in a later work, Moses and Monotheism, 1939, which was published at the end of his life. And so you can see McGrath sees and understands 
Sigmund Freud's contributions to the conversation, but also believes that his insights have been supplanted. And I would add, uh, as I've talked with colleagues in psychology, that Freud is no longer seen as a serious um, psychologist, a more for contemporary psychology, but more as a historical force, which brought out some interesting and important analysis. That would be a consensus. There certainly are Freudians to this day. All right, I'm going to continue with McGrath. I'm going to take some excerpts from this book. Quote from McGrath, Developing his earlier observation that religious rites are similar to the obsessive actions of neurotic persons, Freud declared that religion was basically a distorted form of an obsessional uh, neurosis. His studies of obsessional patients, such as the Wolfman, led him to argue that such disorders were the consequence of unresolved developmental issues, such as the association of guilt and being unclean, which he associated with the, quote, anal phase, end of quote, in childhood development. Freud argued that the key elements in all religions included the veneration of a father figure and concern for proper rituals. He traces the origins of religion to the Oedipus complex, end of quote. You might know this comes from the famous play, Greek play, um, the Oedipus Rex or Oedipus the King. All right, I'll continue now again in McGrath. The emphasis within Christianity upon the death of Christ and the veneration of the risen Christ seemed to Freud to be a superb illustration of this general principle. Quoting Freud, Christianity, having arisen out of a father religion, became a non-religion. It has not escaped the fate of having to get rid of the father. The totem meal, Freud argued, had its direct counterpart in the Christian celebration of communion. Freud's account of the social uh, origins of religion is not taken with great seriousness and is often regarded as a period piece, bearing witness to a highly optimistic and somewhat simplistic theory uh, which was emerging in the aftermath of the general acceptance of the Darwinian theory of evolution. His account of the origins of religion individual, however, is more significant. Once, once more, the theme of veneration of father figure emerges as particular significance. In a 1910 essay on the childhood memory of Leonardo da Vinci, Freud sets out his explanation of individual religion. And here I quote at length from Freud. Psychoanalysis has made us familiar with the intimate connection between the father complex and belief in God. It has shown us that a personal God is psychologically nothing other than an exalted father, and it brings us evidence every day of how young people lose their religious beliefs as soon as their father's authority breaks down. Thus, we recognize that the roots of the need for religion are in the parental complex. End of quote from Freud. I'll end my quote from McGrath and say this would be one explanation, if you were to take a Freudian approach, for the growth of the nuns, the not religiously affiliating among emerging adults 18 to 30. One final insight from McGrath before I close for this episode. Freud explored the origins of the projection of an ideal father figure in the future of an illusion. Religion represents the perpetuation of a piece of infantile behavior in adult life. Religion is simply an immature response to the awareness of helplessness by going back to one's childhood experience of paternal care. Quote from Freud, My father will protect me. He is in control. End of quote from Freud. And then finally, this summary from McGrath. 
Belief in a personal God is thus little more than an infantile delusion, the projection of an idealized father figure. End of quote. Religion is an illusion, as Freud wrote in The Future of an Illusion, which we'll see in the next episode is carried forward in Richard Dawkins' idea of the God delusion.